Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a little over a month ago, I gave a sermon up here uh, in which I argued that America needs more fans of the Bible. Uh, And in that sermon, I retold a story originally told by a former writer for the American Bible Challenge with Jeff Foxworthy, which is still a title that looks weird to see on paper. Uh, This writer recounted that in his Bible trivia show meant for a conservative evangelical audience, he couldn't pull material from 52 out of the 66 books of the Bible, which is almost 80% of the Bible for those keeping track because he was told by his producers that their audience didn't care about the content of those books. And of the books that he could use, he had to avoid mentioning anything that wasn't family-friendly, which included both stories that mentioned concubines and even the crucifixion. So that was off-limits for a Bible trivia show. Um, He also couldn't write questions that suggested that there might be diverse accounts of a single event in Scripture. So he couldn't write a question that suggested that maybe Matthew and Luke had different perspectives on the birth of Jesus. Um, In the end, this writer claimed, his quiz show sold to their evangelical market, quote, the kind of Bible that they actually believe in and not the kind of Bible we actually have. I cited this story as evidence that in the United States, there are many individuals who claim to be quote-unquote, Bible-believing Christians that are actually motivated by a deep ambivalence toward or maybe even sometimes hatred of the text itself. Um, What they love is the Bible as they think it ought to be rather than the Bible as it actually is. As someone who tries to love the Bible as it actually is, I started to give a case for why the Bible we have with its many genres, its diverse perspectives, and its difficult nature is actually better than the flat, single-note, univocal, easy Bible that many Christians want. Uh, And those were my three arguments. The first, that it's good that the Bible is not one book, but a library library of books of different genres. It would be bad if it were all one book, or if it were a library full of books that were all the same genre. Um, Second, It's good that the Bible contains diverse perspectives. It would be bad if the Bible contained a univocal perspective. And three, it is good that the Bible is craggy, messy, and difficult. It would be a bad thing if it were uncomplicated. That was the case I made. Uh, I won't rehash my arguments for those three things. If you weren't there and you're interested in hearing the case I made, the sermon is up on our podcast page. But I mentioned during that sermon that the case I could give was longer than I could give in the time that was allotted for the sermon. So I thought I'd essentially give part two of that sermon today. Uh, But for this one, I thought I would focus more on our lenses for approaching the Bible. After all, if part of the problem is that Christians become more enamored with their lenses for approaching the Bible than they are with the text of the Bible itself, then we need to focus not only on what the text actually does and says, but also on the lenses that we are so committed to. Without addressing those lenses, we can become guilty of straining the text to fit the lens, forcing a square peg into a round hole, 
rather than revising the lens so that it more naturally fits the text and brings out the richness of the text, allows us to see new things. So here are two lenses that I would suggest chucking or revising when it comes to approaching the Bible, and these are two very common ones. The first lens that I want you to chuck or revise is this. There is no opposition between a vengeful God of the Old Testament and a merciful God of the New Testament. That's a lens. If you operate with that lens, I would suggest getting rid of it. This is a lens for reading the text that is perhaps especially pervasive in liberal or progressive Christian circles. It's problematic for several reasons. First off, it's simply not true. Uh, the Old Testament does not portray God as solely vengeful or violent. In fact, I would argue that it does not even primarily portray God as vengeful or violent. Instead, it portrays God in a variety of different ways. In Exodus, God is portrayed as hearing the cries of the enslaved Israelites and moving to liberate them. Uh, God is moved by their suffering, especially in Exodus. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God is the fierce protector of the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. In Hosea, God is Israel's distraught spouse. In Jonah, God is portrayed as a God who wishes for Israel to love her enemies. Let's focus on that last one because it's a perfect example of how the lens gets us to ignore the text because the text of the Old Testament presents us with something the lens says that we're not supposed to run into until we hit the New Testament, a God that wants us to love our enemies. At the end of Jonah, Jonah essentially points a finger at God and says, this is why I did not want to deliver a message of repentance to the Ninevites, the people who put my people, Israel, to the sword. I knew that you were a merciful God who would forgive them. I, um, I, I knew that that would happen if I gave them the message. I want Nineveh destroyed. And God responds to Jonah's complaint with this. Jonah, I don't want to destroy Nineveh. A lot of people live in Nineveh. Also, a lot of cows live in Nineveh. Did you ever think of the cows, Jonah? What did those cows ever do to you? So in Jonah, God isn't just a forgiving God who wants the people of Israel to forgive their enemies. God is also a card-carrying member of the local ASPCA, and God cares about the destruction of cows. In fact, there is a very good reason for Christians who are opposed to conservative gender roles to not hand-wave away the portrayals of God in the Old Testament as simply vengeful. And that's this. God is portrayed as a woman in the Old Testament far more often than God is portrayed as a woman in the New Testament. It's not even close. And if we are at all interested in pushing back against exclusively male-gendered nouns for God or male-gendered metaphors for God, which is something that I think this congregation is interested in, we must do a better job of embracing Old Testament portrayals of God. Here's just one of the many examples that I could give. One of the most common names for God that's utilized in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. You've probably heard that term. You might have even read it in translations that leave it untranslated. 
if it is translated, the most common translation of El Shaddai in English is God Almighty. And that's a terrible translation. Um, now, El definitely means God. So this translation at least gets that part right. But Shaddai does not have any connection to the word might. In Hebrew, a shad is a breast. Shaddai is its plural. So you would have to translate it something more like, quite literally, God of the breasts. But perhaps more naturally, it would be breastfeeding God, or if you want to turn it into a metaphor, nurturing God. Uh, the title is likening God to a mother who breastfeeds. That's what it's doing. Um, it is used to emphasize God's nurturing aspects. Um, you might be able to analyze something about the sort of male-centered perspective of biblical studies that this translation became so common. But there is another really, really compelling reason why you should leave this characterization of the difference between Old Testament God and New Testament God behind Remember in my last sermon when I told you that it's best to read the Bible with others, um, to talk about what you're reading with people from many different traditions? When I said that, I meant to talk to Jews as well as to Christians. Um, some of the best insights that I have gained about portions of the Old Testament have been from my interactions with Jewish interpreters. And for them, the only Bible is the Old Testament. Uh, and it's not a great idea to start off a dialogue with people by essentially saying, you know how the God portrayed in your sacred book is really petty, vengeful, violent, and crappy, but the God portrayed in my sacred book, or at least the parts I care about in my sacred book, is pretty nice? Um, that isn't going to go over too terribly well. In fact, a lot of Jews are probably going to immediately think that you're implicitly accusing them of, them of being, being violent people, since they follow a violent God. Um, that hasn't been an uncharacteristic characterization of Jews or an uncommon characteriz characterization of Jews in Christian writings between the 4th and the 20th centuries. In the medieval era, anti-Jewish Christian theologians were fond of promulgating the Christ-killer myth, which held that all Jews everywhere were guilty of murdering Christ, and therefore any ill fate which befell them say, for example, as a result of pogroms or other forms of persecution, was just a just punishment of God. So it's best to leave the Old Testament God bad, New Testament God good stereotype at the door. It's born out of a history of Christian chauvinism and anti-Judaism. Now, I'm sure that that argument will probably raise some hackles. I know it's a, it's a lens that has been used in this space. Um, and I'm sure that individuals who would defend the usage of it would say, you know, well, what about John Oliver? John Oliver characterizes the Bible in that way, and he's an atheist and a good liberal, so the characterization must be true in some way, shape, or form. After all, an atheist can't be accused of Christian chauvinism. Well, Oliver did still grow up in the church, and he obviously hasn't walked through post-Holocaust theology, which was a quite successful attempt to purge Christian theology of anti-Jewish beliefs through Christian-Jewish dialogue after the horrors of the Holocaust. Without that deep intellectual and spiritual labor, I think he does still carry some Christian chauvinism with him in spite of his rejection of his religious heritage. 
Now, I'm not saying here, and this is what I think probably some individuals are going to hear, I'm not saying here that you can't struggle with vengeful portrayals of God in the Bible. Quite the opposite. I would encourage you to struggle with those portrayals. It's, um, it's just that I'm asking that when you struggle with those portrayals, please don't do so by invo invoking a harmful stereotype or a bad lens. It's kind of like this. When my white friend does not get the job that he wanted, it's perfectly understandable if he is disappointed. That's totally okay. It's a natural human response. However, it is an altogether different situation if he decides to work through that disappointment that he's experiencing by going around claiming that he did not get the position he wanted due to quote-unquote reverse racism and that an unqualified person of color was given the job instead of him. That's a problem. Again, it's not that you struggle with the text that I'm critiquing here. It's that when you struggle with the text, please do so through a good lens. And Old Testament God bad, New Testament God good is a bad lens. So that's the first lens I want to critique. The second lens is this, um, or the second thing I want to reinforce is this. We all believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but it is not God's direct speech to you. That's a bad lens. This one has a lot of variance. I'll start by simply stating the obvious. The book of Romans was not written to Chris Gooding. That seems like an obvious thing to say, but it's, it's an important thing to remember. Thank God it wasn't written to Chris Gooding. Um, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome that was made up of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And Paul's letter is trying to get them to live life together in such a way that the Jewish Christians don't have to become Gentiles and the Gentile Christians don't have to become Jews. None of them has to assimilate to the culture of the other. They can be authentically who they are while being transformed into disciples of Christ together. And that is such a beautiful thing. And I get to eavesdrop on that conversation and learn something valuable about how I can become a disciple of Christ by my eavesdropping. Can you imagine if portions of the book of Romans were actually written directly to me personally? Think about what that would actually mean in human terms. There would have to be generations of Christians to whom sections of Romans meant absolutely nothing. And those Christians would have to spend hours translating those portions of Romans from Greek into Latin, Coptic, Syriac, and many more different languages before getting to English. They would have to have, they would have, to have uh, pumped out copy after copy just so that we would have enough versions that would survive so that an accurate translation of the Bible could get into my hands personally. They would have had to risk their lives to recover Bibles from burning buildings during times of persecution. And all of that so that I could know where, for example, God wanted me to go to college. That's, that, what a waste that would be. I, I could probably have figured that out on my own. Um, generations of Christians toiling in fruitless servitude just so I could get a clear message from God on a question I probably could have figured out on my own. That's a terrible human cost. 
And yet exactly, that's exactly how some people approach the Bible, um, as though it were written directly to them as the, as the sole audience. Uh, there's even a practice called bibliomancy that involves posing a question to God in prayer and then opening to a random page of the Bible and taking that verse that your finger lands on as the answer to your question. And certainly there are many Christians of a whole bunch of different stripes that know that this is a silly practice. But the same kinds of considerations are involved in, for example, interpretations of Revelation that assume that it contains messages for people living in, quote unquote, the end times, and that the text meant nothing to, for people living between the first century and the end of the world. The same kinds of assumptions are operative. Now, when I say that the Bible is not God's direct speech to you, I don't want to rule out the idea that God's word can speak to new generations in new ways. In fact, I want it to do that, right? It certainly can do that. But we as Americans are probably more guilty than most of applying a really individualist lens to the text. We either try to force the text to speak to us directly, or we dismiss the parts that have limited applicability to us. But thank God that the Bible spoke to its original hearers. I wouldn't want them to fail to hear God's voice or to toil in servitude just so that I could eventually hear it. I want it to be the case that the Bible is written in such a way that it means something to its original audience, to an audience in third century Turkey, to an audience in sixth century India, to an audience in 8th century Morocco, and to an audience in 13th century Italy, and to an audience in 21st century America. Imagine what a book has to look like in order to speak to that many different audiences. And the way that it does that, the way that the Bible is able to do that, is being, is being written like it is. It's addressed to a specific audience while still allowing others to eavesdrop. But beyond this, there's a view out there for what it means for the Bible to be inspired. Uh, this view is that uh, in order for the Bible to be inspired, it must be the direct speech of God, verbatim. Uh, the human author in this view for the Bible is only a dictation machine. So Luke or Jeremiah or any of the other authors of the biblical text are just uh, a secretary or a dictation machine. They just, they just take down the words of God as God speaks them. None of their own human perspective is reflected in the text on this view. It's just God's perspective. This is a view in theology that's oftentimes called verbal plenary inspiration is the technical view for it. Uh, and it definitely hasn't been the majority view of what it means for the Bible to be inspired by God throughout human history, throughout Christian history. American evangelicalism and fundamentalism may have made this particular view popular, but it doesn't mean that it was a popular view if you follow Christian history back for more than just 150 years. In fact, many Christians living in many different eras have found the idea that God takes over the human authors of the Bible and turns them into a dictation machine as a little problematic. For starters, many Christian thinkers have realized that language itself is how humans communicate. That might sound really obvious, again, when I say it, but it's, it's, it's how humans communicate. It's, it's not something that 
God participates in as a language speaker. When Genesis 1 describes God speaking all of creation into existence, for example, many early Christians thought that surely the description was analogous or metaphorical. God is spirit, after all, and as such, does not have a mouth or tongue or a voice box. For God to literally speak, it would require a miraculous or incarnational act on God's behalf. This is the reason why, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you encounter a whole bunch of mediators when God speaks. Like, for example, the angel of the Lord or the burning bush. Because, you know, ancient Hebrews realized that in order for this to work, somebody would have to be a stand-in for God as a mediator. Because God doesn't have those parts. Um, But the issue here is more than just mechanical. Human language is designed for humans, again. All categories deployed in human language render the world from a human perspective. I try to get my students to understand this thing, which sounds obvious, but really you do have to think about it. But I have my students read a few scenes from the book Flatland, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a story about talking shapes. And my students wonder why the hell are we reading a story about talking shapes in a theology class. Um, But here's here's the scenes I give them. At one point in the story of Flatland, the square, who is the main character, um, is taken from his home, which is the two-dimensional world, Flatland, and he's taken into a three-dimensional world, Spaceland. And when he arrives, he's suddenly able to experience things in three dimensions for the first time in his life. Prior to that, his, his world was only defined by two dimensions. He could experience width, and he could experience depth, but Flatlanders have no experience of height, right? After the square arrives in Spaceland, the square immediately declares that he's God. This sounds kind of odd, but he does this because in Flatland theology, God has an attribute called omnividence, which is the ability to see all. Now, see, Flatlanders, because they don't experience height, um, they can't get a better view on something by getting higher up like we can. So their, their perspective on things is limited to what's directly in front of them. They can't take in, for example, the entirety of a city at once because they can't go to a nearby mountain and look down into it and see the whole city, right? They don't have that perspective. But Flatlanders figure that God probably doesn't have the same limitation that, we do, that, that, that they do. So now the square also has this attribute, omnividence. He can go up to a mountain, he can look down, and he can see all of flatland. He can see the whole thing from his elevated position in spaceland. So he thinks he must be God, right? Because he's got that attribute of God. The square's traveling companion, on the other hand, the sphere, is from spaceland, and he thinks this is really silly, right? Lots of people who aren't God have this ability. In fact, the sphere says lots of crappy people who aren't God have this, this ability. So it can't make you divine. And we kind of understand this, right? Most of us three-dimensional people would think it's weird that Flatlanders even came up with the word omnividence. It's not a word in our parlance because it doesn't describe a limitation that we have, right? We just call it being able to take in a view if you're on the mountaintop looking down into the city. It's something we do almost every day, but it's described out of a limitation that we don't have. 
I have my students read that story and think about it because this is actually something that is important to remember for all of theology. Theology is done by humans. So the categories it employs are human ones. When we say that God is omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient, God probably thinks that's a bit weird. And I'm not saying that those descriptions are bad or wrong. I think they're useful descriptions of God to use. But what I'm saying is you have to remember that those descriptions of God don't come from God's own perspective. They come from our perspective. When we say that God is omnipotent, almighty, what we're doing is we're taking a limitation that we have and negating it. All of us, we find that our power over the world is limited. We all wish to do things that we simply don't have the power to pull off. So it's a regular experience that we are limited in the powers that we have. When we say God is omnipotent, we simply are taking this limitation that we have and negating it. God doesn't have that same limitation. God's power is not limited. Similarly, when we say that God is omniscient, we're really saying more about us than we're saying about God. We all, as human beings, find that our knowledge of the world is limited, extremely limited. We know a lot less than we want to know about many things. And if you you ever forget that, think about how little you knew about the coronavirus when the pandemic first hit. Um, When we say that God's omniscient, omniscient, we're saying that God just doesn't have that same limitation that we do. So when we say that God is omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient, we're doing the same thing that the square is doing when he claims that God is omnipotent, able to see all things. This brings us back to the problem with a verbal plenary inspiration view of God, the the idea that God simply overwrites the authors of Scripture and uses them as dictation machines. The problem is that this assumes that God is basically a a big human being. It assumes that God can be exhaustively described in human language, but that's not true. God is ineffable, traditionally, in Christian theology. God cannot be exhaustively described in human language because God is so utterly unlike anything in the universe that anything that you say of God will will fail to capture God in God's fullness. Verbal plenary inspiration seems to assume that God is just a, a member of the community of language speakers, which that doesn't make much sense. Um, It seems to assume that God naturally uses human language for description purposes in God's own life, as though the members of the Trinity, the, the persons of the Trinity, communicated to one another in human language. That doesn't make much sense. Um, Simply by utilizing language, God has to utilize a tool that assumes our perspective as human beings. It doesn't make much sense to envision the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit communicating to them in it. That would be like if we as people decided to stop using language and communicate in birdsong, right? It's a more limited tool than we have at our our fingertips. To be sure, our possession of language makes us more like God than any other created being. 
And this is because of the infinite creative possibilities of language. Uh, as any of the linguists among us will tell you, uh, new and unique things are said every day that have never been uttered before in human history, right? But the whole endeavor is still couched in our perspective, not in God's. I think that what folks who believe in verbal plenary inspiration are trying to do is remove a perceived human taint from the words of Scripture. After all, if there are human voices in the text, that's bad from this view. Human beings are fallible. We can be wrong. And the verbal plenary inspiration folks don't want a Bible that could be wrong. But in the process, they forget that language in both its written and spoken forms is a human endeavor. It admits the same fallibility that we have. You can't remove the human element from scripture simply by positing that it is God's direct speech. Human language will always be an inadequate tool to describe God in God's fullness because it is designed to describe the world from our perspective, not God's. I think the, the, the Bible itself recognizes this. If you, if, you, if you wonder what that might look like, read Ezekiel 1. It's the oddest description of God out there. It describes God as four different human-animal hybrid creatures in the middle of a fire, in the middle of an amber, riding on the back of a chariot with eyeballs on the wheels, and I might have missed some pieces, but there's other parts to that. Is that a literal description of God? I asked my students after reading that passage, did anybody ever tell you when you were growing up and you asked what God is like, did they ever give you that description? And they all say no, of course. And then I asked them, well, what do you think is going on here? And somebody eventually says, well, probably Ezekiel has no idea what the heck he's looking at, and it exceeds his description. Seems like a valid, you know, uh, valid point, right? And I think that's exactly what Ezekiel is doing. So human language is always going to be an inadequate tool to describe God in God's fullness because it's designed to describe the world from our perspective and not from God's. And that's going to be the case no matter who the speaker is. So in, in, in talking about what it means that we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, you might as well make room for a vision of inspiration in which both God's intent and the intent of the human author are both displayed in the text. The Bible is going to be a cooperative effort, no matter how you slice it. To try to remove the human taint from the text is to get rid of the text itself, because it's rendered in human language. I had intended here to bring up a third point. The Bible's not a rule book, and it, it's, that's probably a good thing. It's mostly story. Um, but that would probably make this sermon overlong, and uh, I've already talked about what that problem looks like before, treating the Bible as though it were a rule book or if it would be better to be a rule book rather than a story. So I'll stop there, and maybe again I'll pick this topic again up at a later time, and there can be a part three. Um, but I'd encourage you to continually examine the lenses that you bring to the Bible. Do they bring out new features of the story? Or do they limit what you're able to see in the stories that you've read? If you take them off your lenses and you look at them closely, do they seem to be fairly solid? Or are they cracked and broken and need mending?
Um, as you're reading the Bible, you need to constantly be asking those questions. And so that's what I'd encourage you to do. Thank you.